welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with somebody who has a story to share, Rachel Madel. Rachel, what's your story? Oh, Chris, it's like the most heartwarming, amazing story, and I'm really excited to share it. I can't wait to hear it. I need, I need a little heartwarming. Yeah, okay. So I was working with one of my students last week, and um, autistic student, I think he's 12 years old at this point, maybe 13. He's like getting into his teenage years and I've been working with him for a very long time. We're working on like kind of some higher level language things like inferencing and making predictions and you know, social stuff, like all of those kind of things that we start working on when students get a little bit older and have a little bit more advanced language skills. And I shared with him, oftentimes I'll use animated shorts. I love using animated shorts in therapy. I feel like they're good for all different kinds of learners. Like I could be working with like, you know, a four-year-old who's just like starting off with language and practicing core words and, you know, verbs and things like that. And then also, you know, working with older students on perspective taking and narrative skills and things like that. So anyway, I watched a, uh, and in a new animated short with him, and I hadn't seen it before. And it was pretty sad, if I'm being honest. Like, I was thinking, uh, and I have a, a, a team of interns that kind of help with like the online side of my business, and they had added this. And it was a good, it was a great animated short. It just like wasn't super happy and fun. So anyway, it was about this, uh, this uh, little boy who had lost his father. Um, and I watched this with my student, and he started talking about an onion. And I was thinking like, why is he talking about an onion? And then I realized that he was crying. And it was the sweetest moment because he was so confused. And he started asking questions like, am I crying because an onion? Am I crying because, at first I was like, I think you're crying. Like, I feel like, I think you feel sad. And I was like, touch your eyes. And so he like touches his eyes. And I was like, are they wet? And he's like, yeah. And he was like, am I crying because something's stinging my eyes? <laughs> and so I feel like perhaps the student had the experience of maybe being near an onion and that making his eyes water. But he was, it was like him experiencing this emotion for the first time. And he was really confused about what was happening. And it was just this like beautiful moment where, you know, he was, talking to me and you could tell he just like didn't know what was happening to his body um, and so we talked about you know sometimes you know it's not just an onion that makes our eyes water and cry you know sometimes something in our heart makes us feel sad when we watch something or we hear something or we experience something so anyway it was just this really beautiful moment where um, not only was I able to kind of give him language around what was happening for him and you know use that as a teaching opportunity um, but you know I reflected back on that experience after we you know kind of finished our session and so often we hear that you know autistics don't have emotion and don't have the capacity for empathy and you know here I have this 12 year old you know autistic student who's really moved by this video that he saw and it was just such a beautiful moment and um, I just wanted to share it on the podcast because I felt like it was so it was so it was so interesting to see his experience unfold in real time and how confused he was because um, <laughs> I guess maybe he had only had experience with crying when he was you know exposed to an onion <laughs> 
Well, what an amazing way to put, uh, make the analogy and to express it with the language that he has access to, right? So maybe not having the word for sadness, um, but knowing that this, uh, my body reacts in a certain way and it's, and I've, it's reacted in this way in the past. So I'm going to use that to describe how I'm, what's happening now. Uh, and then you taught that, that, that emotion and what that word meant, right? I mean, um, what an amazing moment. Yeah. And I just feel like it's kind of a reminder to, you know, we need to teach kids about what's happening in their bodies and also self-advocacy. I've been like on a self-advocacy kick with my students lately and been sharing on social media a little bit about that. And I just feel like it's important not only for us to talk about things as they come up in real time, which this came up unexpectedly. I was like, oh my goodness, like what's happening? And then I realized I made the connection. Like we just watched a sad video. I think he might be crying right now. Like this is a moment to teach him what sadness is and why it comes and that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't stay. That was also another kind of point that I made for him um, because he was, he got upset. Like he was like wiping his eyes like crying and he kept kind of replaying the scene in his head where like the boy lost his father he was kind of scripting and you know I said like it's okay to have sadness um, giving him kind of permission for that because I feel like oftentimes um, you know a lot of times we are trying to get kids to feel better and we're like don't be sad instead of validating the experience of sadness for kids um, and so I feel like there was that opportunity too um, but again like I think we also can do a really thoughtful job of creating experiences for kids to teach them, you know, teach them what sadness is, um, you know, not just as things come up in real time, which again, we should be targeting those things too. But I feel like oftentimes our kids need more explicit teaching and repetitive practice with certain concepts and certain ideas and certain self-advocacy, you know, phrases and things like that. Um, and so we can take that, we can take the experience that we have in real time and then think, how can I create an experience to kind of reiterate what we already practiced and what we already talked about? Um, I think that that's like a really good way to guide the therapy that we're doing. Well, and it makes a lot of sense from a, uh, a goal standpoint, and I, meaning I could see people not really thinking about teaching emotions, for instance, as a, uh, certainly my, my own bias is to come at things from a linguistic standpoint, right? So I'm thinking like, how can I teach the morphemes, you know, and how can I teach uh, it, what the words are? But I could see an entire lesson about emotions or I'm sorry, not just a lesson, uh, multiple lessons, you know, that uh, explicitly teach uh, what those emotions are and what you're feeling and how that manifests in your body. Um, I think that would be really important. That's why I say from a goal perspective is I, I wonder how often there's goals that are about emotions, um, but not necessarily pairing them with the language or they're only certain emotions or it's about abatement of emotions, like we're not going to do that anymore. Um, so I could really see that as as a, uh, as, a, as a future target. Yeah, and I also think that the way we typically target emotions is like, not great. Like we're showing kids pictures of like, you know, a sad face and like a frustrated face. And we're like, how are they feeling? Right. And it's just like, you know, we, we are not really doing our job in teaching what that emotion is if we're not anchoring it into an experience that a child has had. Um, and so I like really am thoughtful about talking about sadness and then talking about modeling that for a student and saying like, sometimes I feel sad when my mom goes away too. Um, you know, and figuring out how we can talk with communication partners 
and, and learn more about students so that we can anchor in the teaching that we're doing to something meaningful to them. Like, what was a time where they were frustrated? What was a time where they were sad? What was a time where they were super excited? You know, to teach those things in context within their own world and life um, instead of just like flashcards that are like, how's he feeling? You know, obviously we need to teach kids about facial expressions and perspective taking and, and that's part of it, right? It's like looking like, oh, it looks like he's frowning or crying or, you know, those kind of things that we do to teach emotions, but I feel like we're not doing uh, our students justice if we're not trying to find something to anchor into their own experience so that they can start understanding what that language actually means. Right. So, okay, let's talk about that just real quickly here for a second, because um, I think you're 100% right. Like it turns into a, um, or often starts with a drill and kill sort of question answer, like, what does this person look like? What does this person look like? Right. As opposed to making it something real to the individual. Um, And so, like you said, it comes up just naturally, like something happens and you get, let's pick them the sad or frustrated, right? Uh, that happens naturally. But what I'm hearing you say, Rachel, is to like explicitly teach that through experiences, meaning um, that don't just come up naturally. So, so for instance, watching videos like this is a perfect example, right? Wordless picture books would be another example of um, actually and doesn't have to be wordless. It could have words as well. And you could be reading picture books, um, watching movies. I mean, inside out is jumping in my mind as the Pixar movie. I'd want to be, uh, referencing there. I have not seen turning red yet. My, my wife and daughter have seen it and they say, I have to see it, but I haven't seen it. But I feel like, uh, from what I've heard about that new movie that it um, that might also play into emotions. And, and then talking about, um, how, characters in these stories react and then how we could react and then tying that to like you said something that happened in your life or uh, if you are not re- uh, referencing something that happened in your life it's about to <laughs> something's gonna come up and so when it does come up you can be like ah this is like that you know this is like that time in inside out or this is like that story or this is like the the stuff we've been practicing is that does that sound about right Yeah, I mean, I think it's really great to target it within things that are motivating. And I feel like video clips and stories and all these things, we absolutely have opportunities to target that language. And, you know, regardless if I have a goal or not for a student, I'm like taking every opportunity I can to teach them about, you know, the the language of emotions. Because if we think about it, you know, it, it becomes so challenging for students to understand, like, what is frustrated, right? It's like emotions are the most abstract language that we have. And it takes so much time and repetition to actually understand for anybody, for any child. Like, if you ask a three-year-old, like, how they're feeling, they probably can't tell you unless it's like, I'm super excited or maybe I'm really sad or angry, you know? But it's just like teaching that, like, sensation in your body and then that can be attached to a certain emotion. I just think it takes so much time and energy and, you know, repetition. Um, And so we need to start doing this early and often with our students. Um, And again, thinking about our kids with complex communication needs, I feel like we have to be, um, you know, even more intentional about that because especially for a child who's emerging with their communication and their language, we might put that aside, you know, we might say, oh, like, we're not going to focus on those emotions yet. Um, But if we know that it takes so much time and energy to actually teach that that language, uh, we need to be starting often and early so that kids get lots of experiences with that emotion. Well, and I think something that goes along with that, that, again, I don't know happens frequently enough, is us as the adults 
modeling what our emotions are and putting our language with it, right? So uh, let's say a, a you go into a classroom and the student has, is climbing up on the furniture, right? And so immediately you know that's a safety issue, so you come over and you guide the student down off the furniture. But then say, that scared me. I am scared. This makes me feel scared. And, and just labeling your own emotions that way um, helps then in the same way we model what the words mean, that we can model what our emotion, emotions are. And I feel like that's something we don't do explicitly uh, quite nearly enough. You know, this just saying, I like it. It's happy. Oh, you're making me so happy. Or um, I'm feeling happy today, you know, uh, or any of the other emotions that we might be feeling throughout the day, just labeling them and using that as a, as a teaching methodology. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point too, Chris, which is we tend to like, get the device out and start modeling emotions when they're like a child's escalating, right? It's like when they're like upset, we're like, oh, it looks like you're feeling angry because you threw something across the room or like you're sad because it's very visible, you're crying, right? But it's like, we need to also model the happy emotions, right? Like excited and you know, all of those other things too. So I feel like it's a good reminder that we could be kind of helping children, you know, learn these types of language uh, skills in every opportunity throughout the day, um, whatever a child is showing us, um, I think it's important to kind of model that language over time so that kids start, it starts solidifying for them. You can't see it right now, but I'm tearing up, crying. Maybe it's my onions here. <laughs> I have one more story to share that just popped into my brain. Thinking about, you know, our, again, our kids with complex communication needs. Um, I was working with a, a family and this, I walked into a session, and um, this was years ago, but I walked into a session and the child was just emerging with communication, just got him started on a device. We definitely opened up that feelings folder and, you know, I was like, whenever we're feeling anything, let's try to model that language. And I was working with a student and he started crying in the middle of my session. And that nothing I did seemed to be the reason that they were crying. We were like having a happy moment, playing a puzzle, and all of a sudden the child burst into tears. And I never had seen this before. Like this wasn't a child who like, you know, was escalating in my sessions like sometimes they would get you know super excited um, but I never saw them cry and it felt so odd to me so I like walked out and I was like hi like to the mom I was like you know he's crying right now and I'm not really sure what happened um, she's like oh like grandma left this morning like grandma left and I feel like he might be feeling sad. So I was like, okay, thank you for that information. So I go back in and you know, I like make sure that grandma was on the device. And I said, oh, like grandma left this morning, grandma go, right? And I said, that might make, you might be feeling sad because grandma's not there anymore. And you would not believe it, Chris, like after I left, like, first of all, that helped him get, feel better, right? So it was kind of like I validated his experience. And then after that, like mom was like, he's been saying grandma sad, like since you left and like crying and then like get a feeling better, we validate it and then like it keeps happening. But it's like, this is, these are, you know, this is a kid that like, I would have never assumed that they could pick up that language that quickly because we were working on like, you know, very basic communication, like we had just started using the system. And I feel like it just is a perfect reminder that, you know, we have to presume that children will learn. And especially when children are emotionally charged, whether that's like super angry or upset or, you know, super happy and excited, you know, those are moments that really solidify and stick with kids um, and adults too. 
And so I feel like it's just a great reminder of, you know, just making sure they have access to that vocabulary, trying to like be a detective and figure out like what is going on here. Um, and I gave that student the words to communicate how he was feeling and why he was feeling that way. And to this day, he still will communicate when he's sad about someone leaving. And it's not just grandma, it's generalized to other people too. Um, and it's super exciting for, for me as a therapist because it's just like we had that moment together and now he's able to communicate those things. Well, a couple things there. First, Shout out to grandma and grandmas everywhere for making them feel sad that you're leaving and not like rejoice, right? Like, oh my goodness, thank goodness she's gone, right? Like, like sad that you're not there. So go grandma, go best friend. Um, but the second thing there that, that I was thinking was um, how you use that as a teachable moment, meaning, uh, again, it, what might happen so much more frequently is um, let's look at this sequencing cards of a old woman and a and a um, child together, and then the next is the old woman leaving the house, and then the third thing in the sequencing card is um, a grandma getting on an airplane, and the last one is you know I don't know the boy sitting alone in his bed, you know, but that's one way to teach sadness, you know, and looks sitting on the bed looking sad, right? That's one way to teach it. And it's really, but that's not going to emotionally resonate with anybody. Um, unless, unless it does, meaning unless it, that story is very real happening to that person right now. And now you can take that moment and use it as a teachable moment. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I feel like hopefully this Hopefully this, this podcast episode is reminding everybody like how we can do better when we're trying to, you know, teach kids how to talk about their experiences. I feel like that's kind of the takeaway for me here is like, you know, how do we really observe what's happening in real time for students and then, you know, help try to give them the language to communicate in the best way possible. And then the next step is, which I feel like not everybody does this next step, how can we think about that and shape the lessons that we're building for students to really practice and, you know, repeat those types of language so that we can actually get it to generalize. Because again, I feel like if we're just happening, if I just talked about sadness, though, the one time the student's grandma left, like, I mean, it just so happened that he picked it up really quickly, but not all of our students are going to pick it up that quickly. So how can we, again, take what we're seeing a child and observing a child experience and then figure out how to shape that, you know, with the work that we're doing. Um, that can help guide the therapy that we're doing and the lessons that we're building um, instead of it just being like arbitrarily like let's practice go you know like go dog go like it needs to be it needs to resonate with kids um, if we expect it to actually you know generalize and be a skill that we actually can teach them and I think um, something that goes along with that is that I don't know that we said it explicitly so let's say it explicitly and that is uh lean into those moments. Don't lean into the abatement of it. I could easily see someone crying in a session and being like, stop crying, stop it, you know, and telling them like not, not, uh, em embracing the fact that someone's feeling their feels. Uh, and so, so lean into it is and respect it. Yeah. And it's just like, I think that's an important reminder for all kids, right? It's like, cause we, we, we go in as adults trying to make kids feel better, but we say things like don't cry 
instead of saying it's okay that you're feeling sad right now, like you're feeling sad and that's totally okay. Uh, even that shift alone, I think is really helpful because again, it validates a child's experience. Uh, we don't want to be telling kids not to cry because crying is a human, is, is the, the manifestation of a, a human emotion that we all have and it's okay to have. Um, and so I feel like just reframing the way that we talk about it with kids is really important too. How you feel is valid. You're validating their feelings. Exactly. And we all like our feelings to be validated. So speaking of validating our emotions, something that makes us super excited and happy are reviews over at iTunes. Right, Rachel? Yes. We are trying to get as many reviews on iTunes as possible. This is a goal that I've set for 2022. So please, 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 if you listen to this podcast regularly and you really enjoy it, we would love if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps people find our podcast and listen to our podcast and learn more about AAC, which is the reason we started this podcast to begin with. So we would love if you went over there figured out where the, the, the stars are, left us some stars, and even better if you left us some, some words. Uh, we love reading them. It makes our day, and it makes us feel like the work we do really matters to you guys. Um, so we would love it if you left a review on iTunes. And then something else that... Um that we do is something called Patreon, right? And we usually put out uh, uh, extra bonus content. I know that uh, I've already pre-planned some stuff to come out in early May because May the 4th is coming up. So May the 4th, of course, is Star Wars. So there's some Star Wars stuff coming out in the Patreon or some resources to help kids uh, learn more about Star Wars. No, learn more about um, uh, language using AAC, but using Star Wars. Uh, so Go check that out uh, by becoming a Patreon member over at patreon.com slash talking with tech. Awesome. Chris, what's our interview about today? Today, our interview is with Jeanette Washington and Mei-Ling Chan. Now, you know Mei-Ling. We've been longtime friends with Mei-Ling, been on the podcast. Was Formerly, we were part of a podcast network that she put together, the Exceptional Ed Podcast. Um, but we've been friends with her for years and years and years. And she reached out and she said, um, Chris, I have this friend, Jeanette, who is works more in the literature literacy space uh, and working with students with dyslexia, but she is doing lots of presentations and she wants some advice on how to put together her presentations and and just kind of someone to brainstorm with. And I said, want to record it for the podcast? And she said, absolutely. So I think this interview is going to be more about putting presentations together, some um, uh, friendly advice, us brainstorming together, uh, which I think a lot of people on this podcast, a lot of people listening to this podcast, that's what they do, right? They uh, go out and they proliferate this knowledge to other people. So this sort of episode is meant to help you do that more effectively. I'm I'm really excited for this interview, Chris. And I feel like one thing that I've learned in all the presentations that we've given together and I've given separately is, you know, really focusing on a few things I feel like is really important. And I think that we have such a vast knowledge of AAC and all these things that we want to teach. And we just have to be careful about overwhelming our audience with too much too fast. Um, repeating the same important principles over and over again is going to get a lot more, uh, you're going to have a lot more success that way than, you know, trying to communicate lots of principles, but only like touching on them once um, and giving somebody way too much information. So I feel like I've learned that over the years that like really streamline what you're saying, how you're saying it and keep repeating it. Could not agree more. All right, let's roll into the interview with Jeanette Washington and Mei-Ling Chan.
Hey there! If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. Cool. Well, so how can I help you? What are you thinking about? Oh, um, I have a couple of different course ideas. And um, I heard that you are a fantastic speaker and you always bring great resources to the table. So um, with that in mind, I am just open to new ideas. Uh, I do currently use Pear Deck and um, I don't have a... Um, a deck that I use with Fidelity. Sometimes I'm using Google Slides, sometimes I'm doing PowerPoint, but I'm really looking at ways to bring presentations that I do to life, make them more engaging, create a better response for those attendees. So that's kind of where I am. <laughs> and do you mean like um, when you're presenting and there's people there, like are you talking in-person, virtual, asynchronous when you're recording and then they're watching after the fact? Tell me what your, your grander vision is. Wow. So that's a fantastic question because I honestly was just thinking about um, like online or digital courses and, and things of that particular nature where people are kind of self-paced and self-guided. But in asking that question, I'm thinking, wow, I do a lot of talks that are um, face-to-face and in person. So I'm hoping that as I am brainstorming with you two, that um, I will be able to spill some of those um, ideas over into all of the work that I'm doing. So for the context of what I was initially thinking is just kind of online work where there is an audience or um, work that they are watching that is recorded. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, all right. I can give you a couple of tips and tricks and we can take it from there and see what you're, what you're thinking. Okay. Awesome. And then I may have a couple tips and tricks for you. So who knows? Love it. Love it. Let's share. <laughs> so um, something that I learned a long time ago was um, that people care more about the engagement with the with the facilitator, the presenter, me, you know, or the person I'm presenting with than mm -hmm. how pretty my slides look. So mm -hmm. on anything that uh, Chris Bouguet is doing, you're not going to see something from like Slides Go or, you know, like any of those template warehouses that you can get to make your slides look all prancy, fancy and pretty. One, they're typically an accessibility issue, and I do a lot with um, accessibility, right? So a long time ago, I made the decision, I am just going to have a simple background of white, <laughs> just a white background <laughs> with black text and an image, um, or you know, like I'm, I'm big into memes or you know, some sort of a bitmoji or something like that of myself, but uh, the whole keep it simple. And one of the reasons that has really... Uh, boded well for me over the years is that oftentimes uh, when different organizations will hire me 
uh, to do a presentation. I'll, they, they, I'll have done this presentation that was three hours. Well, they only have two hours. So I'm going to, and they want a slightly different variation. I want this geared towards parents rather than, than teachers or whatever, right? So I am often stealing slides from previous presentations and sliding them in and out. And if each time I was doing a presentation, I was picking the, the perfect slides go template, you know, there'd always be having to go back and fix the aesthetics of it. But if it's always just the same, keep it simple, white with black text and little modifications here and there, um, then I can make those adjustments a lot, lot faster and a lot with a lot less frustration. So how does that sit with you and, and how does that compare with your experience? Okay. So, um, couple different things. First, I think that's very masterful to keep it classic. My logo is actually black and white, so it would make a ton of sense to just slap it on there and keep it pushing. But um, I have found myself being distracted by all of the frou-frou and the exciting slides. And so that is what I have been doing for the past, I'll say about two years since the pandemic, I've been um, really drawn to the aesthetics. And if you ever spend time on my Instagram, you will know that I'm all into like graphic art and, and this and that. But I think that this is a, um, a surefire way to make sure your point is getting across. Um, I spoke in Toronto once at a accessibility conference and um, this was probably one of the first that I had ever did um, outside of like working in a classroom. And this is like my first like big deal presentation to people who were non-educators. And afterwards, um, I asked like, does anybody have feedback? This is a quaint space. I'd love to, to know what you all think. And they like were going in on me like, you didn't have this and you use all of these pictures and you didn't even describe. We have people here that are blind. And I'm like, whoa, wait, I didn't know. So <laughs> it only takes once. <laughs> so I will say that um, you are spot on as it relates to like using memes or gifs. Uh, that's, that could be a miss. That could certainly be a miss when you're using all of the, the pictures that are lively because you are excluding those who are unable to see those pictures. And even if you describe it, I still think they'll be missing um, the mark. So I love what you said there. Go ahead, May. What happens with um, this movement that we had a couple of years ago, which is like, you know, a picture says a thousand words, you know, brings out emotions. Um, I know the one that comes to mind immediately is the iceberg and all the iceberg on the bottom. So you bring that up and you don't even have to say anything. You know, people are looking at it and then you can go into whatever topic you're saying that supports that. Um, so can we do, and that's the only thing that's on a slide. You know, I've done that too. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So not to cut you off, Chris, because I feel like you're about to come through with some gems, but I do want to say um, in my experience, having had everybody uh, like give me per feedback during that presentation I did, they um, mentioned that it's helpful to go to the picture and then explain in depthly what the, what is happening on that picture. So if you go to the slide and you say, 
So I want everyone to take a look at um, this picture here. So what we're seeing is an iceberg. And then that iceberg, had, you know, so you're kind of telling the story of that picture and you're doing it in a way that's really inclusive because the people who are watching and who can see it, they're able to, to agree like, okay, it's an iceberg, all right. And then those who are not able to see it, they're able to get a grasp of what they should be seeing. So Chris. I was going to say <laughs> something similar. Let me just add on to that. And that is, uh, especially when you're preparing a, a course or a presentation and you're putting that image there, one of the uh, accessibility features in any presentation software or any good one, let me put it that way, knock on wood. Like, so um, <laughs> Google Slides has it, PowerPoint has it, is the alt text and alt um, alt text or alt tag. It's uh, sometimes the term terminologies are used uh, uh, synonymously. But the point is, is that there's a block of where you can put text that describes the image. So if someone was participating, uh, they could, who, who had a visual impairment, they could hit the play button on their screen reader. And it would, when it gets to that image, it would read the alternative text. And one of the reasons I think that's really important to do um, when you're putting together a presentation is just what you were saying, Jeanette, is that it helps you think through as a presenter, well, what is the salient point? Like, what am I trying to describe here by putting this image here so that it's not just floofy stuff that I'm throwing up on the screen that can be distracting, but there's an actual point behind it. And I know what that point is. I know what I'm trying to get at so that someone with a screen reader could then listen to that back. Um, maybe not even in real time during the presentation, but they, they'd have that, that text that they could rely on and that they could use and that we used it as a, for the presenter to really solidify what we were trying to say about that image. And, and to piggyback again or echo what you're saying, I love how you said that in their own time, they can watch it and, um, they'll be able to appreciate it that way. What I used to do very often, and I haven't done that in a while, and I would love to talk through this as well, but I would create a bit.ly link of my slides, and that was my first slide. I would tell people, hey, if you want to use your own device, if you would prefer to use your laptop or your cell phone or whatever you have, um, this is the link to the slides. You can go through them as I am presenting. So I always thought that that was kind of cool. And it was a quirk of accessibility because it gives them the access to that information and they have it um, and it's meeting them where they are. So if they do need to, to listen to that alt tag and they have their headphones, they can certainly do that. I'm going to take that one step even further. So I've used Bitly. Mm -hmm bit.ly for years as well. A, a, a tripping point that I find some people do, I'll, I'll, I'll go to a presentation sometimes and I'll see someone use Bitly. And what they might not recognize is that if you created a Bitly account, uh, for free, you can customize an infinite number of URLs. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, oftentimes presenters will just use the random numbers or letters, which I find much less accessible because you're constantly mm -hmm. having to, what is A? Uh, C, two, is that like, a capital C or a lowercase C? But if it's like Jeanette's awesome presentation, you know, even if it's longer than mm -hmm. it would be than the generic, I can type that that much. I can type that in much faster. Jeanette's awesome presentation. Bit.ly slash Jeanette's awesome presentation is so much faster because we because chances are people coming to your presentation can type. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I like the idea of making a link 
that is connected to the actual presentation and that is potentially even shorter. So um, instead of even doing Jeanette's presentation, maybe JR Pre's, you know, something that, so that they'll be able to hop in real quick. So I love that idea. So what I wanted to converse about and what I was thinking about is um, now I'm getting to a place where I feel like sharing presentation could potentially pose a threat to people utilizing that and presenting on it as well. I've gone to some conferences <laughs> where people were like, well, can you give me your slides? And I've always been the type of person that says, absolutely. Like, I want this to help you. But then what happens if someone is taking your presentation and presenting on it? It's like, oh, so what are, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, well, before I answer that, let me just throw out one other strategy here for that first slide. And that is, uh, while we were talking about accessibility, and then I'll answer that, my two thoughts, my two cents on it. Um, So oftentimes, in fact, always, I put a QR code on the front slide as well. So again, that's another accessibility quick shortcut where someone can just hold up their mobile device. It it highlights the, uh, it captures the QR code and then it brings it to their device. So just in case someone can't type or has trouble typing, it's like, if, if I can get my phone up there, then it'll scan the QR code. And now I have the, the, um, the slides. So to, and have you used QR code? Is that? I have not. I was going to ask you, what website do you use? Now, I've, I've facilitated for organizations and they've had the QR code already set up. But for a personal presentation, I've never used that. So you can Google, over the years, I've used different ones. So you just Google okay. QR code generator. That said, okay. just in the last few months, Google itself, Google Chrome has updated. So I do all of my stuff in Google Slides. Um, okay. And in the URL bar, on the far right of the URL, the URL bar, um, there's a little icon now that looks like a box with an arrow jumping out of it. It's not exactly the share button, but it's kind of close. Like it's sort of sh- the, similar to the share icon. And if okay. you click on that, um, one of the options is copy link, send to your devices. And then the third one down is QR code and it generates a QR code for you. So okay. you can just use the Google one and um, it's got this cute little dinosaur in there. So it's kind of <laughs> Who doesn't love cute dinosaurs, right? <laughs> now, as far as the problem of someone stealing your slides, so um, first, I I find that's exceptionally rare. Like it, okay. it can happen. I've talked to other presenters where a good friend of mine once was like, he was walking by the room, was like, oh, or heard the, the the title of a presentation at a conference, and he was like, well, that's similar to, to mine. I do stuff on Chrome accessibility. Walked into the presentation, and it was his slides being displayed, oh. right? Um, and so that hap- it happens. I just find that it happens very rarely. Um, okay. the, the second thing that I've, I've always sort of taken the tact that it's, um, that, that, that what's the the old expression um imitation is the sincerest form of flattery you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. chances are the person that's stealing your slide cannot do the show as well as you can do you know what i mean like you know your stuff better than they could know it so it'll always come off like that carbon copy you know like and then the so i uh uh, if I were to catch somebody doing it, I think my reaction would be, 
hey, I have a slide very similar. I don't know if you've seen it. Let me show you. And um, uh, next time I would appreciate attribution, you know, feel free to use my stuff. Just say this is from Chris Bougay, you know, put my Twitter handle on there or something, asking permission beforehand. Um, and even maybe even saying that at the beginning, um, I have often had slides in many presentations where I'm saying, it's free. All of this stuff, take it, use it. Attribution is appreciated. Um, sort of putting it out under of, I, I don't do it as officially as I used to, but i um, used to officially call it creative commons licensing and have a slide. Mm -hmm. that this is how, so it's explicit. So no one, because chances are too, people don't know, like they don't know. Oh, I didn't know that that was like stealing someone's stuff. You know, again, I give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, so being explicit about how I'm licensing my material at the beginning of a slide deck um, could go a long way to uh, kind of one, educating the people that are in your presentation that, oh, they, she doesn't want me stealing this. He doesn't want me to reuse this. Or yeah, go ahead and use it and just give me attribution, you know? Um, and I would always side on use it, use my stuff and give me attribution because that just gets the word out about Chris Bouguet, you know? Love it. And I think that my question comes really from a scarcity mindset and not an abundant mindset. So I've spoken in, in countries where they don't necessarily have the resources that I'm presenting on. So I know it would benefit them to um, present all throughout the country with that information. It always makes me really leery. I went to a conference once where um, I spoke and afterwards a young lady came up to me and she had so many inquiries about dyslexia. And, and me being the person that I am, I sat down and was like, get a piece of paper out. Let me tell you. So you're going to need this. You're going to need this. And then like a month later, um, it probably was a little over a month. I'll say six weeks later, she was releasing the, a book called the Dyslexia Bible. And I'm like, well, wait, hold on. You just was asking me about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't know you were that privy to, you know, this particular language-based learning disorder. And I think that is what made me a little more um, guarded around my my intellectual property, like, man, but um, I, I love what you said about letting people know, like, hey, it's appreciated. It's getting me out there. So, you know, feel free to utilize it. Just let me, you know, like use my info. Yeah. Well, and Jeanette, I mean, ultimately, like when when it's all said and done and we're uh, you and I meet face to face someplace <laughs> and we're or clinking our glasses and we're it's 75 years old or, you know, we're, we're retired from whatever we're doing. Um, there'll probably still be work that needs to be done in the area of dyslexia. Right. Agree. So Agree. The word out is probably um, even more important, you know, like. So, so someone stole some stuff. This is again, my interpretation. I don't, I don't put this on anybody. Someone <laughs> stole my stuff and presented it. Okay. I'm uh, that, what did it cost me? A couple hundred dollars, maybe even a couple thousand dollars, but the word mm -hmm. is getting out, which is the grander mission we have in our life. You know what I mean? Um, so I try and keep that, that perspective that, um, um, that the grander mission is about helping the kids and helping families and that work will never not be needed, you know? Okay. And it will never not be done either. So yeah, hey, right? let's keep it going. Love it. Perspective is everything. 
for sure. For sure. When you were talking about Instagram and you were talking about uh, how you were sort of into graphic design and making your stuff look a certain way, you, mm-hmm. you feel like you have a brand and you have a brand and do you, are you familiar with the, that feature in Canva where you can upload um, your, your, an image like right now we're recording on zoom and I have this background image, right? I can upload this image into Canva and it'll pull the colors out. So then whenever I make a bookmark or a social media post, it'll have that color scheme. Are you familiar with that? So I think you were um, referring to like removing the background. Is that it? No, not necessarily. So are you familiar with Canva? Are you making your yes, stuff? I Canva? use that exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> I love so- Canva. Canva has a feature, and I don't know if it's the premium feature or if it's a free feature, but it has mm-hmm. a feature where you can take an image that you've already created, you can upload it into Canva, and it will pull out all of those colors and make a, a palette of colors for you so uh, that when you decide to make other stuff, like a YouTube banner heading, you know, or header, or like I said, a bookmark, or a, I don't know, whatever, you know how Canva has all those different templates that, you know... <laughs> You don't have to keep searching. Well, what color was it? What number was yeah. it? It has that palette for you. So you can always just draw upon that palette to make your next thing. Yes. So I'm definitely familiar with that. And that is considered um, the branding, like the colors and even with the fonts too, because I've been able to pull out um, my font that I traditionally use and now it's saved in the Canva. So shout out to Canva because I think it has definitely um, leveled the playing field for a lot of us who have been like creative but not really um, formally trained. So now we can do all of these amazing things. So sure. there you go. Well, Jeanette, I got to <laughs> ask, what do you, if you know off the top of your head, especially being someone who works in dyslexia, what font do you choose? Because I find that's an issue. A lot of times the fonts being chosen are not the most accessible fonts. You know what I mean? Yes. So with um, dyslexic learners, a lot of times they will find that the letters, um, not only are they mirroring themselves, but just looking at like the D and the B, um, it could be quite confusing. Now, this is just one of the, the many different characteristics, but I found that if you use font that is extremely distinct and unique with every single letter, then that is really helpful. And that's going to be Comic Sans. Um, there is a font that is called Dyslexi. That's really helpful. Um, and it's a lot of them. It's a, I'll say it's about six that I found to be really, really helpful for those who have issues with um, being able to distinguish between the different letters. So if someone is interested, I would say start with dyslexia because it's free and then Comic Sans because it usually is already on your computer. So Love it. Love it. Cool. <laughs> All right. What other, th- what other kind of questions? Let me think. Now, you know, know, this... <laughs> this this um, method and where we just kind of like bouncing ideas. I'm like, man, let me think of some more ideas because this is really helpful. Well, um, I got a question for you, Jeanette. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about um, like making like an asynchronous course, what okay. are you using to record your video? And you like you have the slides up behind you, and it's you know uh, uh, mini Jeanette in the corner. You know how mm-hmm. do you, how are you doing that? So honestly, I've been using Zoom quite a bit. 
I find that that is really accessible. It's super easy, no guesswork. Just hop on and start recording, have your slides already shared to your screen and go from there. During the editing process, you can do some other things. I did see the other day, I purchased a course from a classroom teacher and this course was all about um, looking at different ways you can monetize your experience in the classroom. It was, it's a great class, um, great product that I bought and it's by Miss, um, let me see. I think it's Miss Caldwell's classroom or somebody's classroom is the name of the person. But anyways, so what I noticed about her particular um, courses is that her face was circular and it wasn't that traditional square Zoom. And I was like, hmm, I didn't ask her, but I'm intrigued to see whether you know if um, there are some other products that could be helpful to, to keep you on the screen, but to maybe maybe you're a circle now and, and not that square where you're cutting off stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, so I don't know what specifically okay. that could have been. It could have been a mask that is placed over the, uh, the video. So like I, I would know how to do that. The way I do it is record with Zoom mm -hmm. and then I take that video file and I'll put it in WeVideo. Um, again, because I have access to WeVideo. WeVideo is an online video editing tool. Um, and then what you have is you have your different tracks, right? So you have your audio track, you have your video track with the slides behind you. Um, and then there's the, there's the, the presenter, right? Mm -hmm. And I could see how you could put a mask over that um, in the same way you overlay text or something like that. Mm. Uh, you, when I say put a mask, I don't mean like on my face. I mean like a, a circle <laughs> that's, so that's sort prevalent of, now. <laughs> yeah, but a circle that sort of um, changes that it's not a square down there. And I've also seen, although I haven't played with it, like a green screen behind. So it actually eliminates like the square uh, or the circle, and it's just the cut cutout of the of the person. I've seen people do that. I haven't done wow. that. Wow. Okay. Nice. That's um, nice, and and it's wonderful to see all of these options that are now available to us. And it's unfortunate that a pandemic had to bring all of these different ways for us to connect. I feel like online courses were um, somewhat relevant and then the pandemic happened and it was like omg so now everything is online course um, accessible so i'm loving that uh we video um tip or trick so i'm gonna have to check that out and look at ways in which i can mask and it's not really a big deal i think it's more of an aesthetics thing so for sure may i know you work with a lot of asynchronous online courses different people that are putting stuff together have you seen cool tricks this way yeah, I wanted to share. Uh, Timothy Kretschmann, he came to us, he does at Commables, and he is a former director of special education who now focuses on trying to bridge the gap between um, us creating all of these great accommodations and teachers actually using them. And mm. so he did a presentation for us and he had his slides behind him virtually use the green screen and he wanted to be walking, talking and moving. And we got a lot of criticism back um, during it and afterwards just saying that it was um, difficult because he was sometimes standing in front of the words um, distracting. I don't you know. I was really surprised because I was like, that is so cool because you can see the whole <laughs> body. You know, and he was moving and shaking and he said, you know, I wanted this to feel like an in-service where we're all together rather than just half of me floating up in the top right corner. So um, I was surprised at that. Um, so I just wanted to give that back to you guys. So what he said is maybe then next time he would design the slides so that the words are here 
um, and he has a, a you know, an, another camera. And so he had the camera looking at him, also making sure that he's looking at the right camera um, all the time. And so he's, you know, speaking to the audience. So these are just a couple of things that kind of move us into more like directing um, and acting almost, right? You know, just making sure that the set and everything looks the way that you want it to look. Oh, mate. Um, so I've had that exact same experience where I've recorded everything. Then I'm putting the video together and I've had to move the box around because wherever the box was might be covering an important piece of the slide. And to, to, as I was doing it, I was thinking, okay, this is probably a good thing because it probably shifts people. Into, oh, Chris is up here now. Oh, Chris is down here now. You know what I mean? Um, where it's, you're not just like, can imagine two hours, someone down in the bottom right-hand corner and you're going through slides or whatever the, however long it was, um, can start to get a little bit like, you know, uh, so that's another, I think, piece of advice there is keeping whatever you're doing short and bringing up, uh, keeping it, uh, well-paced, you know, uh, I think, <laughs> TLDR is a real thing. Too long, didn't read. And same thing when first thing someone sends a, a you a YouTube video, the first thing anyone does is look at how long it is. You know, if it's okay. over seven minutes, you're not watching it. You know what I mean? Or you might, you might, if the person, you might turn on like, hey, can I change the speed and put it up to like 1.5? Because I don't have time to watch a seven minute video, you know? No, um, no, no. So your course, breaking it down into small chunks where it's small, like what point am I making? Then, uh, And it also, I think, gives people a place where they can then jump off, pause and come back to it. Now, I think with YouTube, the um, company in itself benefits from longer videos because they can put more ads in there in that way. But I'd have to agree with you. This is an age where we are all trying to really understand how we work because we've been thrusted in working from home so frequently. So uh, our attention spans have been impacted severely. I certainly cannot watch a video longer than, I'll give you 10 minutes and that's it. <laughs> that's all I can commit to. And I have to move on to something else. Um, I do think that there is brilliance in the way that um, we are presenting and how you can have the different bullet points very succinct and then your face or your body formatted to where um, they can still see those bullet points. Now I've worked with a company before where um, I was facilitating for them and their thing was that, you know, the bullet points are just really just to jog your thought process, but you're not supposed to be reading directly off of them. So that brings up another controversial, you know, thought in, in the way we're presenting, like, should you be reading verbatim or should you just bam, bam, and then go to the next slide, you know? Well, okay. So it's so funny you say that because I was thinking of bringing up this point back when we were talking about the accessibility of images. It's mm -hmm. sort of the same thing when it comes to text is that, and I think the answer is still the, the same, is that you've always heard, right? Everyone here is don't read the text off of slides. Well, I feel like mm -hmm. that is an accessibility issue where I've learned Actually, you do read the text off the slides, but it doesn't have to be in a uh, Ferris Bueller sort of way. Like, let me Bueller, yeah, Bueller. Like, let's talk about the, here's here's the here's the point, the bullet point. And now let's mm -hmm. talk about it for a second. Here's the bullet point. Now let's talk about it for a second. And you can move through it in that way that you're meeting the accessibility needs, but you're also getting the it's not uh, droning on May. So I'm a control freak. And what? 
Are you guys saying no, you're not? <laughs> oh, we cut um, out there, May, by accident. The latency, that's what it was. Um, and when I have, like, I know you're not supposed to have more than like four or five bullets. I mean, that's like the rule, right? You just can't have all this text. But um, I like to come to a new slide, have the title, um, and then start with a bullet. And I still like animation because I'm controlling it. But I want to ask you guys about that. So they have the handouts. They can see it all. But we're just talking about that first bullet. Because if they, if you open up and there's all five, you can't read and listen at the same time. And I know I do it too. I'm visually scanning all five of them. And the person is already deep into you know discussing bullet number one. So what do you guys think about animation? Because I think there's been back and forth about don't have anything sliding in and, and mm -hmm. fading in and out, you know? I think that it can be overdone. Um, moderation is key, as we learned earlier with Chris saying that he likes to keep it black and white. So I think that um, animation certainly brings that engaging layer to the presentation, but let's not overdo it. I think sometimes we can make it um, more chaotic than it needs to be. Um, I do like the idea of having one bullet available to read at a time and then another one will fade in and then another one. But I also like the idea of setting the expectation as you're presenting and saying, you know, hey, we're going to go over all five of these steps. So we're going to start with the first one, you know, so people understand that, hey, I'm going to be reading along with you and helping you figure out each of these points that I have posted or listed here. Chris, what are your thoughts? So for me, it's extremely rare that I'm going to have bullet points on a slide in general. Uh, it's, you know, if I have one or two of those in a slide deck, it's it's that's a lot, right, for me. Because what I've learned over the years is instead of putting bullet points on a slide, I will take each point and put it on its own slide. Uh, mm. Less text, why stick on one slide and hit animation? It's harder to swap in and out later on. If again, if I'm changing to a different presentation for a different organization, uh, it's more stuff I have to manage. But having that individual slide, here's the one piece of text you need. And then again, I like to try and make it fun. So I will have some sort of meme or image that goes along with it, unless it's like, this is the point. And it's just the text, you know, um, uh, to, to try and not dilute it. So and it depends on what the point is. Uh, and if I can think of a fun way to, to present it, sometimes it's just I, such a super powerful point I'm trying to make. It's just the text. So it's rare that I'd use animation. It's more, more frequent. I would break those, those bullet points out and put them in separate slides. I have two questions that have just come to mind. So one thing is, uh, one question rather is, what do you do to hook your audience immediately? What's that one thing that you got to do to get people invested in what you're talking about as you are standing up and you're looking weird and you're saying, hey, 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 everybody. <laughs> What's the one thing? Well, OK, so that, again, is so variable based mm -hmm. on is it in person or is it not um is yeah. it asynchronous is it not is it synchronous with zoom and then people are floating into the room and you got the chat going you know so i i don't know that there's like one strategy that i use to necessarily hook people that said i think of most presentations as a three-act play you know so i am uh, the participants are the characters and the first act is uh, a problem, 
that we're trying to all work together to solve. The plot in the middle, the second act is, okay, what are some strategies we can put together? What are some ideas participants can put together to solve this problem? And then the third act is, okay, what's our actions plan? What are we going to do about it? What's our resolution here at the end? What are some of our takeaways? What are you going to do? And thinking about any presentation, no matter how long it is, in that sort of three-act formula has really served me well. May? Um, again, just speaking from my experience in your presentations is I love the hands-on activities that you always put in there. Even if it's, you never used a QR code, let's do it now. You know, you might have two people in the audience who have never done it. And Chris, by the end, has them QRing every QR code up there. Yeah, exactly. Love that. Okay, love that. Well, that is part of the formula too, is, I, and I feel it in myself, if uh, by 10, if, if I've talked for 10 minutes um, without posing some sort of question or some sort of um, participant engagement. If they're not actively here solving something, uh, I can start to feel it in myself. I get a little like angsty, my, the butterflies <laughs> shake. Like it's, we had the, the point of doing these sort of professional learning is like people can listen to podcasts. They can go to YouTube. They can, if they don't want to just consume and listen to somebody, they can do that. It's mm -hmm. the point of being in a, in a, in a professional learning experience, like the ones we're discussing is, having that engagement and uh, that interactivity. I love it. Love it. So um, I'm going to be doing an in-person talk next month in New Orleans, Louisiana, one of my favorite cities. And um, I, I guess for me, I'm feeling a little anxious because I normally present at tech workshops and for tech companies. This will be something, um, it won't be new, but every time I present with educators who um, are in the classroom, they're doing the work. It always gives me a little pause because I'm like, you know, I'm standing on this ivory tower telling you all what you need to be doing. And I'm not in that classroom. I'm not in that therapy room. So I'm really, when I posed that particular question, I was uh, thinking about what it'll be like. I don't know why. I think that is uh, maybe some trauma I have about <laughs> presenting to educators because I always remember, you know, when I was getting professional learning um, or professional development and these people were talking over my head and it was like a sit and get like, oh, you're not in my shoes. You don't know what's going on. <laughs> so um, I think that was helpful, though, to think about um, the three act play and to um, understand that this is a problem we're all solving. First, you have to pose that problem. Then you have to maybe. Um, pose some some variety of ways that the thought that the problem can be solved and then the resolution itself is exposed at the end so yeah well for sure and he, uh, <laughs> when we're asking people to solve that problem i find letting them solve it um, and then guiding them to things they hadn't thought of before, you know, and that can happen through reflective questions like, all right, I see the strategy you're putting here. Um, have you thought about um, what technology are you using? Hmm, okay, what technology can help us? Hmm, have you thought about um, having text, text read out loud? What do you think would happen if we had text read out loud? What would your students do? You know, like posing questions to them, but I, I think really authentically letting them answer questions has really, again, served me well, because it gets them again, engaged, like, and I don't have to be that sage on the stage answering it all and knowing <laughs> it all. It's more about them 
and then filling in my expertise here and there. Okay, here's some gaps I think maybe we missed, you know. I, I like the the phrase sage on the stage. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you want to be the guide on the side, right? <laughs> All right, before we go, I wanted to see if, um, Jeanette, you can share a little bit about this really creative area that you've gone into, which she just touched on, Chris, is that she's been out presenting to the tech community. And I don't know if this is anything that you would be interested in, but I definitely think of you as somebody who could, if you haven't already, because I don't know what you do outside of um, our community, um, looked into using your expertise and moving it into other um, professions. And so I've learned so much from her. Um, I'm really excited. I'm going to start doing that myself. And I know you have so much value. So just listening to her, you know, who knows what, what might resonate with you? Well, Jeanette, let me ask you there with, I mean, are you going to organizations like, let's say a company and they're like, how do we make things more accessible? Cause we recognize that we might have people, um, we might have a dyslexic community in our employee population. How do we support them better? Or how do we make our products more, um, uh, accessible to everybody so that uh, people who are living with dyslexia can can access our products better is like that that's sort of the 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 avenue that you're taking wait so you're, you're slowing it away <laughs> i'm so proud of her <laughs> so i will say that it is a little bit of both of those people in the room usually there are companies that contract me to come out and um, provide a pathway towards um, retaining, recruiting dyslexic and other uh, language-based learning disorder employees, because now um, the world is starting to see how valuable it is that we are bringing people that don't necessarily think like us or look like us to the table so that we can create innovation and we can have these efficient processes and streamlines in place. So a lot of companies are coming to me and they're saying, hey, we want to get more um, people who are differently abled on our team or we have some people who are differently abled and we don't know what we're doing um, to, to facilitate their stay. And we just need a little more assistance. We need knowledge around that. And so um, one of the things that I've talked about is creating those employee resource groups where um, people have those like-minded individuals that they can connect with and um, just creating a safe space where people can authentically show up. Because what we'll see is a lot of individuals who have disabilities, they do not disclose that to their employer. I believe from the statistics I read is about 70% of people who have ADHD or dyslexia or any other um, language-based learning disability or disorder, they're not telling their employer because they're um, a, probably scared to get shunned and, and pointed out and say, hey, this person is different. Look this way at this person. Or B, they don't want to, um, to get less work or to, to be treated in a manner in which at work where they're like, oh, you're not, in, you're not capable of doing this. So we're going to have you do this. So that's just some of what I've seen. And that's like that precipice of the iceberg. But um, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exciting to hear that you're having companies reach out to you and, mm -hmm. and understanding that uh, diversity um, uh, in every form of that word helps and they're looking for and, and makes better products and makes a better mm -hmm. working environment and it, it leads to uh, innovation. And so taking active steps to actually hire people and bring them in and say, okay, we re recognize this is a weak spot for us. How do mm -hmm. we... 
how do we change? That's exciting to hear. And and yes, May, I'd love to do more of that. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I'm thinking about like just the dialogue we've had about creating presentations that are accessible. Um, Just looking at that interviewing process, how are companies making their interviewing process more accessible to, let's say, someone that's on the autism spectrum? Like, what are you doing so that that person feels safe in that interview and they don't get anxiety and, and overwhelmed, you know? Here's the thing, Jeanette, right? Oh my gosh. And whatever they put in place to help somebody, well, how can we make it more accommodating for people, um, for, for an autistic or for people with autism <laughs> is going to work for everybody else too. You know, yeah. <laughs> like yes. are, are your current, exactly. are your current strategies really getting the, you to get the great employees that you really wanted in the first place? What if we just change that up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about even in the classroom as we're implementing the Orton Gillingham um, and the balanced or structured literacy and the multi-sensory approaches so that we can cater to dyslexic learners. We're also helping create pathways for all other learners. Who doesn't love tactile learning? And you know, kinesthetic, so you're playing with some clay so you can learn the letter sounds like, I would have adored that. I had those big phonics books that we had to go and do every day. <laughs> Why is that specialized instruction? Why isn't it exactly. just instruction for everybody? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> So, Chris, this is where I want you to be is um, we did a, uh, a presentation, a different presenter did it with Fed talking about um, 504s for professionals. Oh. And that is making me think of, you know, again, going to this circuit, going to the tech world and saying you need to know this is available to you and advocate for yourself in addition to having the HR people in the room. So there's so many people didn't even know, especially now, because so many people are coming forward with mental lifelong mental health issues that they've been dealing with. We need people like you two out there. Like I'm getting so excited. We need the people <laughs> like you out there educating for our adults. You know, we've been so mired in the at the um, school systems, right? And we always think a child with autism is in you know fourth grade, right? Mm-hmm. Or four year old even. Like you know, they're just so cute, and we just have to work with them now. But what's happening is all those kids have grown up, and they're out there working, and they're mm-hmm. trying to deal with life with people who don't get it. You know, they don't understand the spectrum. They don't understand ADD or ADHD, like all of these things. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I've been hearing about Jeanette's work is I feel like people like yourself, Chris, you've got to get out of our fishbowl, you know, and I'm not saying that negative. I'm saying we need you to go out and educate all of the people that are out there in the working space and, and help starting to change the, the culture and the path for all of these kids that are still coming up you know, and having to get out there. That's where I was like, these two guys, you guys have got to meet. Um, I'm trying to push Jeanette to do a course that is very specific to this, which would be, how do you um, get out of our professional network to um, to share, you know, especially the different platforms that we have. We have so many great leaders in different areas. Um, and so, you know, you guys connecting is great, but I, I really think that Jeanette doing a course that is not t- saying exactly how to do it, but like even what you did with me, open my mind, you know, to, wow, like, you're so right. We need to start educating the real mm-hmm. world, you know, yeah. and educating adults. On children. Mm-hmm. I feel strongly about adults because they don't realize that it's not enough just to put on Facebook. You know what? I finally admit that I have ADHD, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much more that goes into that, you know, a life of always feeling that you can't get your stuff done, you know, that you can get strategies now at work. You can't, all of these things. Like, I think everyone is so much more, um, they're open and ready now. 
something that resonates with me is the fact that um, dyslexia is hereditary and it runs in the family. Do you know how many parents who have come out and said, I hated school, but I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I, or someone who said I dropped out of high school because it was just so difficult for me. And now my child is struggling with reading and, and we, we see it now. We see the correlation. And I'm like, man, you know, because 20, 30, 40 years ago, people weren't really talking about dyslexia. You may have heard it, but it was like, ooh, dyslexia, I don't know. You know, so yeah. <laughs> Jeanette, let me so, ask you. Think there. Mm-hmm. Jeanette, did you, to, to what May was asking about there was about like marketing yourself to companies. Is that how you have sort of marketed yourself? It's sort of like, I'll do schools, but I do companies too. Like, have you made any specific steps to actually target uh, industry? Yeah. So that's what I generally do is I target industry professionals, but I have a very steep um, influence in education. So tons of educators are connected with me. I'm connected with them. My community is pretty vast, but um, what I do Like, for instance, with my social media, I I like to put out information for um, teachers and SLPs that are in my community. But outside of just posting about, you know, reading and and language and literacy on the back end, I'm pursuing tech organizations and companies and saying, hey, this is what I do. So it's it's an interesting dichotomy because I've built a following based on my love of reading and um, my work, my love for the work that I've done as a speech pathologist and also in the education space. Because I worked as an educator for like three or four years. But um, a lot of the like the paid work that I'm doing is, is definitely outside of that scope. It's more with technology. He's a coder. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. So I, I did learn how to code. Um, code herself, in- Chris. <laughs> Oh, there's so much. She's so humble. So the other thing is she can't give it all away because she's creating a course. You're going to have to take her course, Chris. Right. I'm her agent. But you know, Chris <laughs> and I might be, we might do our own course too. Yes. Though, so, hey. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been exciting. Yeah. And that, I think you're right on. There's a, there's the world's got, cannot change fast enough. Right. And so targeting not just one population, but all of them really makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So I think that was it. So I guess for the last question, um, what, let's see, what would you say to someone who had a couple different course ideas in their mind? And um, to answer your question, these course ideas would be to be uh, virtual courses that were asynchronous um, and they were feeling very unmotivated and they just were like, I don't know. What are you, <laughs> what would you say to that person? Okay. I'll give you two two things. One is, uh, for the, for the, I know a handful of people who have created online courses and it has been very lucrative. <laughs> uh, that sort of it, people will say passive income. I don't think it's passive income at all. Cause it takes a lot of work to get it up and running and then to maintain it and then to market it. Right. It's still active or active, but the content itself, once it's created, has been created. So um, if you're at all motivated by money, then I think the course itself could be, um, that could be a motivator. But the second thing um, that I would say is to just do it. Uh, it's like any other work, you know, like um, 
it won't be perfect start it don't i think that's probably a big roadback for a lot of people is like oh man i want to i just gotta i want to try and get that circle around my head in the bottom right hand corner and i'm not sure how to do that and that seems like cumbersome but i know how to do this other stuff like so i don't really want to do that eh, you don't need to circle around your head you don't need all the floof just get it done get it out there You'll, you'll find your audience and then you can always learn from there. You can always make it better. What's the old expression? Don't let, uh, don't let the enemy of good. What's the, you, you've heard of it. What is the, the enemy of progress or something yeah, about an yeah. enemy of progress, right? Something like that. <laughs> don't let perfect be the enemy of done. Something like that. I'll take that. <laughs> Just get it done. I think is the, uh, you know, and if someone, you could tell already that you're, you, you are someone who has already has established themselves as a, uh, uh, as a leader in the field who works hard, right? So this is just one more thing you got to work through, you know? No, yeah. listen, yeah. I didn't even say yeah. it was about me, Chris. I didn't even say it was about yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your friend who we're talking about. <laughs> I was thinking analysis paralysis. Yes. Is that another one? Yes, that's and, uh, a great paralysis. That is a great one. Yeah. Um, but I think you can also have a large reach if you're motivated by helping people, people, it's so much harder to do synchronous, right? It's so much harder to be like, especially families who have kids and, and, and I mean, both their industry and, and educators. Um, so finding time to do something, I have to be online at Thursday at 4 PM. It's not going to happen. Even if my best intentions, you know, the Mm -hmm. numbers are going to be lower where async, you know what? It's two o'clock in the morning. And for whatever reason, I can't get to sleep. Ah, man, that Jeanette course, let me just do that. It's been, you know, um, (laughs) people can do it when they can do it. You know, um, that async piece, I just think it's, uh, it was coming before the pandemic. And when you said Jeanette, like the pandemic just helps accelerate how fast people are are moving to that. There was already successful companies, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. No, I, agree. I agree. All right. If, if all hearts and minds are clear, that's what they usually say in a black church. Are all hearts and minds clear? And then after that, we, we get out of church because, you know, we we go to church for like six hours. So, <laughs> so by that point, your hearts and your minds are clear. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine is. Mine's clear. How about you? Great. I always love getting time with Chris. So this is I'll take what I can get. <laughs> Thanks, everybody.